research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. And I'm joined here today with Eric Eggers, uh, author and vice president of the Government Accountability Institute. And we're going to talk today about the biggest myth in Washington, D.C. Now, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of myths that that flow through our nation's capital. But one of the biggest is this. It begins with this premise that big government and big business are at each other's throats. They hate each other, right? And this is what they tell you in Washington. We need more regulation. We need more power because we have to tame big corporations. But we're going to make the case today and I think prove that, in fact, the opposite is true. Big business loves big government and big government loves big business. And kind of the arch through this entire story today is going to be a big company that a lot of people maybe have never heard of called BlackRock. Are you familiar with BlackRock, Eric? Well, uh, I mean, I'm not at your level from a portfolio standpoint, but I do have a (laughs) passing understanding of the largest financial company in the world. Yes, that's exactly right. Right. Started in 1998. Uh, It spun off from Blackstone. Uh, not very creative there. You know, we're going to create a new company called BlackRock from Blackstone. Both companies that sound like they might have been involved in, in creating the Jason Bourne assassin program. <laughs> That's right. Maybe they could have a new spinoff called Black Heart. I don't know. I think we should move on before we get canceled. Just keep going. <laughs> Just keep going. <laughs> but it started in 1988, and this is a massive company. Um, it's an investment management company. They they handle pension funds, individual investors, uh, endowments, corporations, and they've been nicknamed uh, the new branch of the federal government because of their power. Um, In the 1990s, they used to call Goldman Sachs government Sachs. Uh, BlackRock has now replaced Goldman Sachs as the preferred sort of insider financial firm. And and guess how big they are? How big are they, Eric? Uh, yeah, this sounds like an old Johnny Carson bit, right? <laughs> which is classic Schweitzer, like references to 80s things. Which we got a big government, which sounds like an 80s political slogan. Right. How big are they? I don't know, Karnak, you tell me. Yeah, that's uh, right. I'm, 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 I'm trying to pull the age card here because like when, when it was government sacks, you were what, in elementary school or something? Let's keep my age out of it. But that's I, think, right. I that, think they have uh, nine trillion in assets under management. That's correct. Nine trillion. And just to, to consider this in scope and size, this one company manages $9 trillion. The gross domestic product of the entire United States is $20 trillion. So that means they manage almost half as much money as the entire economy of the United States. 45% for anybody that wants to be fraction specific. That's exactly right. That's right. Now, BlackRock operates around the world. We're going to talk a little bit later about sort of the stuff they're doing in China. But the thing that people have to understand is that the, the traditional way of thinking about big companies like BlackRock is they don't want regulation. They don't want to be involved with the government. We're going to explain to you and show you today that actually the opposite is true. What's one of my favorite things that you say, and you know, so many of my uh, things that you say are my favorite, but you like to talk about (laughs) the classic frame of, you know, Democrat and Republican politicians 
people think they disagree or they must really not like each other. But the reality is, is that when from, you know, nine to five, that's the show. But after hours, they're actually business partners, right? Yes. And so I think you would say the same thing about companies like BlackRock and the federal government and the Federal Reserve specifically. They actually are business partners. That's exactly right. So what happens is that BlackRock, as with some other big Wall Street firms, is kind of the go-to company that the federal government goes to when we are in trouble. They did it in the 2008 financial crisis. At that time, of course, BlackRock was very, very small. Um, But BlackRock- And, And pause, and I think it's just worth considering. Yeah. So they were small in 2008. Yeah. And here we are 12 years later after their involvement in helping to solve the financial crisis. Right. They obviously benefited significantly. Yeah. And I would put solve in quotation marks <laughs> uh, because what they really did was kick the can down the road. But uh, look at what happened with COVID. So COVID, of course, a massive health crisis. Uh, it's an economic and it's a financial crisis. And what the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury Department basically did is they turned to BlackRock to, quote, stabilize the market. And the way they tried to stabilize the market but what was by empowering BlackRock, in fact, subsidizing BlackRock to start buying massive amounts of corporate bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Um, Corporate bonds, of course, if you're General Motors and you want to borrow money, you issue a bond. Somebody has to buy those to make sure that they're being bought. And the concern during COVID was we have this economic shutdown. Who's going to buy these bonds? Well, guess what? We're going to get BlackRock to do it, says the federal government. And we're going to subsidize them. What a charitable frame, right? Like next time my wife gives me a hard time about spending too much money on, uh, you know, Florida State football tickets or booster status. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm stabilizing the FSU Athletics Administration budget. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly. So you're, it's really all altruistic. Yeah. Um, so they're buying these corporate bonds. They're also buying mortgage-backed securities. You remember, this is what got us in trouble in, in 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but BlackRock and other firms were buying $40 billion. That's with a B every month. Right. Beginning uh, in, in the spring of last year. Um, and the question is, what does BlackRock get out of it, right? I mean, we know the federal government wants this, what they call liquidity. They want a lot of cash. So they're printing a lot of money. They're making it available. They're telling BlackRock to go out and buy this stuff. But what does BlackRock get out of it? Um, they don't get a lot of fees, right? Uh, they only make about $48 million a year from doing this, which for a company with $9 trillion in assets is actually not that much money. But they actually get something more important, Eric, than the fees. What else does BlackRock get out of this arrangement with the federal government? Well, I guess when you do business on the inside, then you have access to information that's on Ah, the inside, right? Correct. So they would have access to what we'll call critical information, which means they know basically which firms and individuals are buying what properties, right? No different than... Uh, you know, we, we've used this frame before when we talked about actually in the aftermath of 9-11 and you get these big tech companies and, you know, we use big tech products on the regular that don't cost us money. And you say, well, right. if you can't tell what the product is, you're the product, right? right? Right. So it sounds like BlackRock has access to information. They understand buying trends. And if you're in the business of identifying which sectors to be in from an investment standpoint, that could be quite valuable. Yeah, hugely valuable. In fact, a lot of people would argue that the most critical ingredient in financial markets today, because there is so much capital available, it's not having money. It's not even necessarily having a particular insight. It's having access to information. And Bloomberg kind of put it this way as, as it came to this arrangement. One arm of BlackRock knows where the Fed is buying, because of course they're doing it for the Fed, while the other parts of 
uh, BlackRock um, are participating in credit markets could benefit from that knowledge. And that's the problem. You can't ultimately know what BlackRock is doing. And if we know one thing about these financial firms, they have a huge appetite for generating as much profit as possible. And there's really nothing that would prevent them uh, from doing this. It's interesting, though. You said, you know, we talked about 2008 and you wouldn't call it solving the crisis. You right. call it kicking the can down the road. And I'll never forget, uh, I actually bought my first home in 2009, right? right? So like after it's gone through this whole, oh, no, 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 it's much it's much tougher to get a loan now, yeah, right? So, so was this like some desperate person that had been shellacked by the financial market? You came in and bought this thing in pennies in the dollar. I resent the implication. <laughs> but what I would say is that uh, actually, so I, I put a deposit on a townhome. Right. That I realized later I didn't want to buy, right? Okay. And I was like, man, I got to get out of this. Otherwise, I'm going to lose a thousand bucks for the deposit. Right. So I was like, okay, let me, you know, hey, we're post crisis. Maybe people are nervous about lending stuff. So when the bank called me to ask me follow up questions about where I was getting the down payment from, how my job was, <laughs> I was like, look, I don't, I could get fired tomorrow, bro. <laughs> you know, like, where is my deposit going to come from? I, you know, I don't know. My mom said maybe she'll give it to me, but right. then I'm not talking to her. I don't know. Right. So I tried my best to sound as shady as possible on the phone. I bet you were good at that. Th- thank you. Yeah. Th- thinking that they might like decline me, which would then save me $1,000. No chance. <laughs> they, they said, yep, yeah, you're good to go. In fact, would you like two houses, sir? Uh, so I was like, you know, maybe this mortgage crisis isn't quite as uh, sustainable, or maybe the solution isn't sustainable as we think it would be. And now that we see that, uh, you know, that, that BlackRock, BlackRock, which went from being one of the solutions, allegedly, to the yeah. housing crisis, they might now be positioned into helping create the next housing crisis. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, one is their involvement with the mortgage-backed securities. But right. the other thing is not only does Eric Eggers now have this real estate empire that began with this Empire with a capital E. That's right. Um, BlackRock. A lot of people don't know this. Big Wall Street BlackRock has gone, gotten into a new line of business over the last several years. They are actually buying massive numbers of single residential homes. Now, they owned uh, real estate before, commercial real estate, uh, apartment buildings, but they're buying large tranches of single family homes. And so this is a really complex kind of a free market question, right? Because some people would say, hey... They're a private company. They can do what they want. They're not forcing anybody to give up their home, right? They're not right. using eminent domain. Nope. Nope. People are willingly selling their home, and this right. company happens to be willingly buying them up. Or companies are creating new subdivisions, and they have, they're free to sell them to whomever they want to. If they want to sell them to companies like BlackRock, they're free to do so. But where I think the criticism gets really interesting is, is if BlackRock, because of them being essentially an extension arm of the federal government, because of their role they play in helping to stabilize different aspects of the economy, if they're then able to borrow money, right, from the Federal Reserve at what's been reported 0.05% or incredibly low rates, rates that even financial titans like Peter Schweitzer doesn't have (laughs) access to, and they then take that and they buy up houses, what impact does that have on the housing market? And or the future for people, you know, millennials or people that are not currently in a home that want to get in one, does it lock them into a future of having to rent? And what does that do to the economy? Exactly. And this this is a fundamentally important point that we try to underline all the time, which is we believe in the free market, yep. right? The question is, is this really functioning as a fully free market? If you have this financial monster, BlackRock, that is in partner with the federal government, that is uh, buying all of these mortgage-backed securities, that's getting access to all this information, 
uh, and they are getting subsidized loans. Because right. remember, when COVID happened, one of the things the Federal Reserve did was they said, we're going to provide extra liquidity. We're going to provide extra loans at very, very low rates to big Wall Street firms like BlackRock. If that monster, that financial monster is competing against you know, somebody in town who's yeah. trying to pick up an extra house as a rental, or you've got a regional company that's trying to buy, is that really a fair market? And I would argue it's not, that the federal government has tipped the scales in favor of BlackRock, this massive, large company, and it is going to affect not only other people who are, uh, you know, want to buy rentals or in the market of buying rental real estate, but it's also going to affect what? People that are actually renting. Well, exactly right. And I think it's, it's affecting people that are renting. It's it's going to be driving up the cost of rentals, which means housing becomes less affordable for even the middle to lower class. It's going to be driving up the cost of people that want to purchase a home because, you know, you've seen this trend in big cities where people are having to spend and offer 20% over asking just to get into a price. And that's a, that's a stretch for even like regular people. But for a large financial investment firm, it's not that big of a deal, right? That's and right. And if you control the market, right? Let, let's say you own all 30 homes. This was explained in a very good video on a, um, on a Twitter feed recently. If you own all 30 homes, right? And then you purchase a 31st home and you pay an extra 20% on that home versus the other one. Well, you've just raised the value of your other 30 homes, right? So you can, right. in a sense, control and manipulate your own market which only negatively impacts other people who are trying to purchase homes. So it's That's right. And and what BlackRock is doing to your point, what BlackRock is doing is they're not going into uh, all these individual neighborhoods and buying one or two homes. Right. They are finding uh, communities that are distressed, they're coming in and they're buying lots of say 300 homes, and what that means is they now control the rental market. In other words, if you're going into that neighborhood and you want to rent a house, you can't go to different owners and try to negotiate or see what they do. you're dealing with one massive landlord, which is BlackRock. And to be clear, it's not a it's not a huge problem right now, right? Just to give some yep. context for like the housing market in the United States, 140 million housing units in the United States, generally speaking, right? Of the 140 million housing units, 80 million are standalone single family homes. Of the 80 million standalone f homes, 15 million are rental properties, right? So basically like one in six, yeah, uh, between one and five, one in six. So uh, so that's interesting, you know, it's about 16%. Of the 15 million single family rentals, only 300,000 are run by institutional investors. And of those, BlackRock owns about 80,000 of those, right? right. So, so it's not a, like, it's not, hey, this is what's wrong today. This is right. why you can't rent a house today. Exactly. Today, you can't rent a house because you need a better job. Let's be honest. Like yeah. you should look in the mirror on this one. But tomorrow, <laughs> it might be BlackRock's fault. Right. Because right. this is a trend, right. right, that's only expected to increase. Um, you know, more than half the country's multifamily properties are currently owned by institutional investors, uh, whereas they right now they only own two to three percent of single family rentals. But the estimated like, look, if this is good money, right, yes. and this is good yield for their portfolios and for their investors, then why would they not get into more of this space, especially if they continue to have unfettered access to discounted capital to do so? Exactly. It's it's a it's a reminder of, I think, one of the great uh, principles of all time in economics enunciated by a Milton Friedman, the Nobel Laureate in economics, the professor of economics at uh, University of Chicago, uh, who said, I'm not pro 
pro-business, I'm pro-free enterprise. And what he said is there's a difference. If you're pro-free enterprise, you want an open market that allows for competition. If you're pro-business, you're in favor of supporting certain individual businesses. And that would be, I think, the situation that BlackRock enjoys today. Well, I think the concern is, is that you, as the housing prices continue to increase, and let's be clear, like, I don't yeah. know if you checked what your house is worth on Zillow lately, but I mean, mine, I mean, not to flex on everybody in the podcast, but, you know, I'm please doing, do, please we're, flex. we're doing okay in the Eggers household. <laughs> no, but I mean, the housing prices have gone up insanely, right? Yes. Uh, housing prices are expected to climb 12% this year yep. on top of last year's 11% rise. And they're projecting even for next year, a 6% increase. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it, like echoes of 2008, right? Because yes. the last time we've seen this period of appreciation was 2004, 2005, which, you know, famously occurred yeah. th- two years and three years before the mortgage crisis, right? right. right? And, the, you know, the destruction of the global economy. So, yeah. I mean, are we on the way there? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is we're seeing some similar trends, which only incentivizes companies like BlackRock and these other institutional investors to continue to be more aggressive in this space at the expense of individual home buyers. That's right. So we've been talking about BlackRock and the role they're playing uh, in uh, real estate, the subsidies that they receive from the federal government, their partnership with the federal government as it relates to COVID. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the question of regulation, because this is something that is always put forward by people in Washington, D.C., who say, look, the reason we need a vibrant, strong, big federal government is you need to regulate these big, bad firms, right? This is what Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren will often say. Well, I think some people would say, well, clearly the federal government will protect us from companies like this from doing that to the housing market. That's right. That's right. That's the that's the theory. The practice is that, no, these big companies actually write their own regulations and big businesses. This is very important. Big business loves, loves regulation. Now, that seems very counterintuitive, but let's just talk a little bit about what we mean and and cite some examples. So let's go back to 2010. Uh, There was a bill called uh, Dodd-Frank, which was the biggest overhaul of financial regulation in in American history since the 1930s. So this is a massively important bill. And the claim was by Senator Chris Dodd from Connecticut and Congressman Barney Frank from Massachusetts is that Dodd-Frank was this tough regulatory bill that was really going to stick it to the big Wall Street firms. Right. Here's the problem. Uh-oh. It was actually lobbyists for Goldman Sachs and other firms in Wall Street that actually wrote the bill. Now, why would they do this? The why? bill that's supposed to regulate companies like Goldman Sachs was Correct. written by They're people that worked regul- for Goldman yeah. Sachs. Yes. Yeah. Could you imagine? I mean, this would be like telling your teenage kids, you get to write your own rules. We're not going to actually set your own curfew. You could write your, you could set your own curfew. That would not go well. It's the same situation here. Hey, dis- I mean, I love you, but but disagree, because if you've seen the movie Yes Day on Amazon, <laughs> which li- I have not, literally about that, kids get to write their own rules. Parents have to say yes to everything. Well, it's a great film. You know, and it, so, and it go- everything goes well? Everything's terrific. Yeah. Oh, Terrific. Okay. Well, so the question is, I made this provocative statement that big business loves big regulation. You even why? said loves like yeah, that. Loves. Like, like, exactly. Yeah, that's you being provocative. That's right. So the question is why? Um, and all you have to do is look at Dodd-Frank, which everybody was saying is going to really stick it to the big guys. Goldman Sachs and other firms actually lobbied in favor of Dodd-Frank. And here's why. If you are a big firm like BlackRock yeah. or like Goldman Sachs, You have a huge compliance department. You've already got hundreds, if not thousands of lawyers who are handling compliance for you. 
what you are interested if you're a big firm is getting bigger. And one of the ways you get bigger and get more market share is by destroying or driving smaller, weaker competitors out of business. And the easiest way to do that is by creating onerous regulations. And that's exactly what happened with Dodd-Frank. You saw consolidation in the financial business. A lot of regional uh, uh, financial firms went out of business because they just said, look, we cannot afford to comply with these regulations. And so that is the sort of dark underside um, of how big businesses really like regulations. And we've had a more recent example with the COVID shutdowns as well. Yeah, it's interesting to think of COVID shutdowns as being an example of regulations because I think of it as more of a natural disaster. But you're right, like it was it, it was a natural disaster partly because government imposed lots of regulations and said, no, you're not allowed to do these things or not. Right. It's where I actually spoke to a group of college Republicans last night and I was telling them, it's interesting to think about how much the stakes have changed just from a political perspective standpoint. Like when I was in school, being a college Republican meant like you're in favor of a lower tax rate, right? right? Today, right. it means like, no, 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 like, can you tell me not to leave my house, right? I mean, it's <laughs> right. like, but right. that's what it is. Right. So, so right. The, the pandemic being related to yeah. uh, government regulations, and you're right, the, with the regulations and the pandemic, the 50 largest companies during the pandemic last 18 months have averaged 2% revenue growth. Uh, while small business revenue shrank 14, 12%, right? Yeah. So clearly the big companies were big enough to withstand and actually grew a little bit. Small companies withered. If Advantage, you, winner, big business. Yeah, so people wonder why is uh, Walmart and Lowe's and all these big box stores, why did they not resist the shutdowns? Why were they not opposed to them? Because guess what? In most localities, they were allowed to remain op yeah. open and the small mom and pop hardware stores or grocery stores or delis were required to close. And they eventually went out of business. Some estimates are that 20% of all small businesses in America are basically not coming back as a result of this. Who's going to pick up uh, the results of that? The big competitors who were able to survive the pandemic and the shutdowns because of these onerous regulations. So when people tell you we need a big, strong, vigorous government to hold in check big business, they are absolutely wrong and incorrect. You see this time and time through history, big business loves big government because they can, in effect, sort of skew the results. And one of the ways they can skew the results is the revolving door. Now, we've talked about the revolving door. Have you we don't see them much anymore. You see them in New York. Have you ever been through a revolving door, Eric? You mean an actual physical door? An actual door? physical revolving door. Absolutely. And I have small children. So anytime we go in any kind of a door that revolves, like it's a good bet that one of my kids will get stuck and or injured or they'll injure somebody else. So no, like you say revolving door, like I know that we think of revolving doors are dangerous for like free economies. It's actually dangerous right. for like anybody near my family. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, it's also dangerous in Washington, D.C. Oh, here, that for, look at that you. for a transition? What a pro. It's also dangerous in Washington, D.C. for for America, not for the political class. And look, I understand we want to have smart, bright people from the private sector come in and do public service, service the high levels of government. They have expertise. They have knowledge. But here's the problem. The problem is a lot of people go from Wall Street into government. And then they're going to go back to Wall Street. And so that's going to influence and direct and steer the kinds of policies and decisions and influence they have on the decision making process in Washington. And all you need to do is look at one company, BlackRock, 
and one administration, which is the Biden White House, to look at the numbers of people that have gone from BlackRock into the administration and are now steering policy. What, you think just because the head of the White House National Economic Council is uh, the former (laughs) BlackRock investment executive, you think that matters, right? Top officials in the Treasury Department is a former chief of staff to Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, and the chief economic advisor to the Vice President uh, Harris is also their former global chief investment strategist. Okay, that's a decent amount of... uh, (laughs) You know, kind of intermingling there. That's what they call juiced in, right? Juiced I mean, you in, are, right. You are you are juiced in with that kind of arrangement. We need a new name, right? Because like it was government sacks, but do we have a similar thing for BlackRock or no? I, I you know I don't know. I think we should come up with it, but also it, you can't really say juiced in when you're talking about BlackRock. So we need to come up with. Some you are kind so of bad at puns. Dude, I, I, don't I don't know. know. I don't know what the answer is there, but um, we'll see. But here's the question, Eric: Where do you think these individuals? That were at BlackRock, who are now in the Biden administration, where are they likely to go? Probably to some with- like environmental nonprofit where they advocate for uh, <laughs> you know hemp or That's right. wind policy. <laughs> right, it's it's certainly a possibility, but it's <laughs> doubtful. If you look at most of the examples of people that uh, go to the Treasury Department or serve in the uh, the White House, yeah. they end up going back, if not to the exact same company, although they often do, they end up going to other financial firms. So the question is when. You you're looking at the head of the White House National Economic Council, or you're looking at senior Treasury Department officials or the economic advisor to Kamala Harris, are they really honestly going to take carry out policies and actions that are going to be detrimental to their former employer and possible future employer? Yeah, it seems unlikely. Yeah, it's very, very unlikely. And that's that's part of the problem. But I think the final thing we have to consider when it comes to BlackRock um, is the fact that BlackRock continually now gets protection from this administration, in part because of revolving door, in part because of financial contributions, from some of the actions that they've undertaken that are very controversial. Again, the theory is big government is going to check big business, but clearly they are not doing it in the case of BlackRock. So you'd say potentially undermining the housing market and eliminating what used to be called the American dream, which is the idea that everybody can own their own home. Yeah. That's not the only thing that BlackRock's doing that might not be in line with American interests. Well, there's a lo- there's a lot of controversial things. So there's a big scandal brewing on Wall Street right now over something called ESG, which is Environmental, Social, and Governments, Governance Standards for investment funds. And basically the, the the theory or idea here is you're going to set up a mutual investment fund um, that is going to be environmentally sensitive or it's going to be sensitive on certain social issues. Is this the thing where like they'll pay a higher yield if they meet certain thresholds on? Well, on the they will. Event? But but what we do know on these ESG funds is that BlackRock has these things called index funds, yeah. which just it buys the index. They get very few, hardly any fees for that because it doesn't require a lot of effort. Right. Wall Street loves fees. That's <laughs> how they get paid. So ESG funds are very attractive. BlackRock has has uh, jumped in with both feet because they can say, well, look, it takes a lot of time and effort for us to screen uh, it's not, not an index fund. Right, right, right. Right, right. So we have to screen. We have to research and invest. So they can charge sometimes 2% or so. When an index fund, you're getting 0.10%. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a totally different. But here's the problem. Uh, a lot of research, the Wall Street Journal has looked at this and elsewhere, is that these ESG funds uh, are really guilty of What's called greenwashing and greenwashing basically says is that a lot of these ESG funds that BlackRock is offering um, are a mirage because they will say that an environment, environmentally responsible company is, say, Apple. 
which produces massive quantities of plastic yeah, products. Yeah, I feel like I've heard world. a few podcasts about Apple having a few concerns about some of their business practices. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Or or the the uh, the, the social uh, uh, side of it. Uh, BlackRock is heavily involved in investments in China. Yeah, speaking of Apple, right? Yeah, yeah, so we yeah. look at the Chinese business too. Yeah, and BlackRock has huge investments there don't have a great record when it comes to things like human rights mm-hmm. that are supposed to be of concern. So the question is, BlackRock is doing these controversial things. Do we see the Biden administration doing really anything about it? Well, that's the point is if a big business is offering such a big service to the big government, it seems unlikely, right? It's no different like than we talked about, again, in the post 9-11 podcast, when, when you have companies like Google and Facebook providing intelligence and providing and sharing information with national security organizations, they're unlikely to crack down on those companies for potentially violating laws or best practices, things like that. It's no different here, right? That's exactly right. That's so that's, exactly that's right. why when we have partnerships between big business and big government, we should be very on the lookout because it potentially means very bad things for the little person. Yeah. So when big government and big business are sitting down to share a meal, yeah. taxpayers and citizens are usually the main course. On the table. Yeah. On the table, exactly. So the bottom line is we always have to remind ourselves we should not be pro-business. We should be pro-free market. It's fundamentally different. And these large corporations and large government don't like free markets. If you think about it from the government standpoint and you're a regulator, would you rather deal with 350 small companies or three large massive companies? You'd rather deal with three large massive companies. And when you leave government, you can actually often get a job with those companies. That's an important takeaway for the listeners, but I think it's not the most valuable takeaway for the listener. Which would be? That if you heard Schweitzer, Index funds are the way to go, right? Low fees, <laughs> mimics performance. BlackRock's not making money off of you. <laughs> I, I am not giving financial advice here. And if I am. Knows index my, fees, index fees. <laughs> if anybody knows my funds, uh, my yeah. history of investing, they would run the other direction. But that's the bottom line. Right. So when, when people look at this cooperation between big government and big business, I would be very skeptical and I'd be very fearful and don't buy the lie. The big lie that's being told by so many people in Washington, D.C., that big business and big government hate each other. They don't. They love each other. Well, you spent time with Peter Schweitzer and Eric Eggers on The Drill Down. Uh, You can sign up for this podcast uh, on any of the natural platforms. uh, And you can also find us at thedrilldown.com. Thanks so much for joining us. 